1 Peter chapter 1, we'll read verses 3 through 9. Beginning in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Well, we have been considering now what I've entitled the hope of heaven out of 1 Peter, the hope of heaven. And we've been laboring methodically through this passage of Peter. And now we come to a point in time as we've looked at what I've called true conversion. We've looked at what we've entitled true treasure as we've considered our imperishable and undefilable inheritance. And now I want to talk to us about true assurance. True assurance. Focusing in our attention on verse 5. On verse 5. But let me just say quickly a note on assurance. Sadly today, you know, this is one of the most precious gifts that is afforded to the Christian in the Christian life. This idea that we can have an assurance that we can have a certainty about our salvation. And sadly, it has become for many people and at various times and seasons really more of a perplexity than a comfort. The believer's life is oftentimes riddled with doubt and with an existential battle within that causes you to well up with a lack of assurance. And therefore, this This doctrine of assurance is a rare and precious commodity. Would you not agree? The true believer has assurance, according to Scripture, as a gift. God has given us assurance to be a comforting joy, not a paradoxical conundrum in our minds. Assurance is a glorious thing, and it is an aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who within our hearts testifies to us in a very real and internal way, in a heartfelt way, in our hearts, testifying to us and assuring us that we are in union with His Son, with God's Son, with the Son. But often if we're honest with ourselves, the devil and sin. I'm really angry at the devil today, (laughs) so he better watch out. (laughs) But the devil and sin oftentimes twist and distort this precious gift of God. It is a supernatural gift. It is a gift 
that is so incredibly spiritually indispensable for your life and for mine. Because true assurance is supposed to be there to assure us of our adoption as sons. As 1 John chapter 3 says, assuring us that we are the children of God. Everything in Scripture suggests that that is to be the normative pattern for the believer with this whole talk of assurance. But sadly, trial, tribulation, temptation, and the influence of the evil one often snatches that seed away. But this is the whole purpose of why we do introspection. You remember, that was the whole point of 2 Corinthians 13.5, a verse that many of you can rattle off and, and have memorized. Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith and examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? You see, it all has to do with union with Christ. Am I in union with the Son? And the Bible also tells us that the Bible was written so that we may know that we have eternal life in the Son. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that should change everything about our disposition. That should change everything about our perspective, our outlook in this life. If we really truly are assured of our future hope of heaven or our future inheritance, that should really change the way that we live here And now, Peter provides his own powerful method of assurance whereby the believer could be comforted and assured of his or her entrance into the kingdom. Look at 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to this glorious, glorious statement by Peter. He says, therefore, brethren, verse 10, 2 Peter 1.10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. It's a little bit different than maybe the King James calling an election sure, because here it places the, 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 it places the emphasis on God as the agent of the calling and the electing. So make sure about his choice. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And who doesn't want that today? Who doesn't want the kingdom of God, or more specifically, entrance into the kingdom of God, abundantly supplied? I do. I want to know that there has been a door open to me by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that is why you analyze and that is why you examine and that is why you test to see your calling, your election in this way. As we will see, there is a tension there, and I hope to unfold that tension a bit more. But as Peter is talking about the hope of heaven, he is also trusting that his readers will have assurance as well. If we constantly find ourselves doubting salvation, putting our hope in heaven, we'll be too often 
an unrealistic ideal, an unrealistic goal. Instead of producing joy, it will produce despair. And that's why it's important. And here we'll look at the occasion of this assurance and describe its nature. So we're going to labor under this heading, true assurance. And the very first thing I want to do for us is sort of step forth, what is the need of assurance? Why did the need of assurance arise? Let's look back again at verse 5. He says, who are, that is those that he has been talking about who have been born again by the sovereign activity of God to a living hope, those who have obtained an inheritance unperishable, those that have a heavenly reservation, those are the ones who are being protected by God or by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so the need for assurance in the letters of Peter rose up out of a particular need, namely persecution. In other words, there was not so much that they were doubting salvation or there was this existential battle in their heart and in their mind. It was actually the, the external influence of suffering and persecution, to be exact. That is what had brought it about. Peter, you remember the way he opens the letter in 1 Peter? He is addressing those who have been scattered abroad. And he calls them there at the opening of the book, he calls them... Uh, aliens. He says, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And later on, he says that these exiles, these sojourners, these pilgrims, they were actually strangers on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 11. For Peter, the gospel apparently ought to have so radically altered the lives of these folks that they'd consider themselves uh, unrecognizable, if you would, in the world. That is to say, when they looked around in planet Earth, when they looked around their cultural milieu and what was going on all around them, they did not see anything like themselves, no equivalent of their values, of their beliefs, of their morals, of their theological perspectives. In other words, the world with all of its culture, its philosophy, its worldviews, all of its ethics, all of its notions of spirituality have no ultimate common ground with the believer. With the believer. There comes a point in time where when you compare Jesus to anybody, to anything, there will never be agreement when the real Jesus is set forth. He must always, always be unique, incomparable. There will be nothing like Him in all the world. For the authors of Scripture, there is Christ and His gospel and everything else. That is the way that Paul saw the world. Christ, the gospel, and then outside of that is what Paul calls the worthless elementary principles of the world. Take shape however they may, look however they might, speak however they want, 
articulate whatever religious or philosophical view that they would like, but ultimately, in, the, uh, in God's appraisal, they are worthless elementary things. You do a study of that phrase, the worthless elemental things, and what you come to find out from the lexicons is that it means something like man-made principles of of, of ethics or morals, man-made philosophy, man-made religion. Are you seeing the common thread here? This is an anthropocentric way of looking at the world. It is a man-centered way of looking at the world. The gospel produces gospel-centered, God-centered people, people that view the world through the lens of the triune God of Scripture. But Peter uses these terms, aliens, strangers, no doubt with a hint of irony here, which means for him, these are titles of nobility. These are noble badges that you and I possess in this world. When you feel yourself estranged, and I hope that you do, I hope that you look around in this world and you feel yourself not at home here, finding no culture that is that is Christian enough where the gospel and the Christian faith synthesize, harmonize. American culture is not Christian. It is baby-killing. It is, it is homophobic. It is, it is, it is anti-God. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-Bible. And God will put you in that position where you will have to make a choice, like the readers of Peter's epistle, you will either have the futile ways that you inherit from your forefathers, that's what he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, or the gospel, one or the other, and the two do not go together. These are two totally different worldviews, and that is why they are being persecuted. That is why they need the assurance that God is protecting them in the midst of all of this antichristness. Look at uh, chapter 4 of this very letter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Because for Peter, he describes persecution as consisting of ridicule. Ridicule for refusing to go with the flow. Ridicule with, by refusing to identify with this sinful world. Look at verse 3. He says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Wait a minute. Isn't he talking to the Gentiles? Yes, he is talking to a mixed group of Jew and Gentile, but you see what has happened in the theology of the New Testament is that by the time the apostles are now writing, the idea of Gentile has now become synonymous with an unbeliever, with an unbeliever. That is outside of the gospel, not outside of Israel. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about anybody who is outside of Christ is now identified as the Gentile world. Even Jews are now to be considered part of the Gentile world if they are not in Christ. That's why he says in Galatians chapter 4 that Jews have the ability to go back to the elementary principles of the world just like Gentiles did. But he says, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. 
in all this, they are surprised. What a fascinating statement. That you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. Meaning, they malign you for it. Why won't you join in with all the dirty jokes at work? What's wrong with you? Why don't you go to the bar with us tonight? Don't give me this Jesus stuff and that that's the reason why you're not going to go to the club or whatever. Watch what we watch. Do what we do. Listen to what we listen to. This is where the need for assurance arises. It arises in the context of adversity, of adversity. This is real-life opposition from the world so that you're made to feel that you are at a step with the culture, and I hope that you do. Oh, I pray that you do. I was praying over this exact portion in my notes. I was thinking, boy, I hope that we do. I hope that we feel a sickness in this world as you look around. And what does that sickness look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like what Jesus told his disciples. Unless you hate your life in this world, you will surely lose it. Because if you are just right at home here, with all the TV shows, if you're just right at home here, with all the worldliness, and I'm talking about sinful things. I'm not just talking about watching the news. I'm talking about enjoying a particular godless worldview that is our, our whole culture is saturated with. Now, we are, brothers and sisters, we are, because of the gospel, we are so altered, our orientation and our identity is so reoriented that we are out of step with the morals and the moral norms of society. I mean, I heard, okay, that the Super Bowl, there was a bad rumor going around that they were going to do a gay marriage ceremony at halftime. And you know what I did is I protested the Super Bowl. I don't even like football that much, but for fellowship's sake, I usually watch the Super Bowl. I'm not talking about having a Super Bowl service in the church. That's a little overboard. But I am talking about just enjoying a ball game, all right? But when I heard that that was going to happen, I thought, what a perfect opportunity for us to protest and say, no, we will not join with them in the same excess of dissipation. And then some of the brothers pointed out, well, if that was game seven of Lakers versus Celtic, would you? And my answer to that was, yes, I would. As much as I bleed purple and gold, I, I bleed Bible, hopefully more. The power, let's move next to the power of our assurance. That's the need. The need is that we're surrounded by adversity, okay, and opposition. But the power of assurance is found in that little phrase that we are being protected by the power of God. Oh, what a sermon right there. You want to talk about doing a sermon on one verse? How about one phrase? The power of God. I have no way to approximate it. I can't yell loud enough to try to get you to a size and to appreciate and to taste and to see the power of God. Instead, we need merely to consider his power in two areas. Number one, 
God's power in creation. It was the power of God that made the world. Look around. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. Look around at creation. All of the great luminaries. All of the great galaxies. All of the great creation. I mean, now more than ever, we should have the capacity to appreciate the infinity of God through what He has done. Having the, the Hubble telescope. Having the ability now to more than ever uh, understand the expanse of space. The, the depth of space. The, the, the distance between stars stars and moons and planets, and it just causes us, hopefully, it causes us to stand in awe and to say, in the creation account, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, and he made the stars also. He just kind of tacks that on at the end. And the Bible tells us that he has, not, he has named every star. He knows every star by name. He has a name for every single star. Man will run out of numbers, but God will not run out of names. And in the new creation, turn with me back to 2 Corinthians, just to see that there is actually an analogy here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The same God that created everything. Verse 6, For the God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge and of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The power of God displayed in His created order and the power of God displayed in His new creation. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And one day all of creation will be newly created but you see the power of God upholding, creating, sustaining, maintaining, one day bringing to nothing all, all of the things that he has created. Peter himself tells us that God's power one day will dissolve the created world as we see it now. Amazing, amazing. And so what this means is that the power of God is to be credited for your protection. You ever wonder, what got me here today on the way to church? How did I not crash how did i not get in a horrible accident and 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 have you know my body spill all over the highway it can happen okay i'm not prophesying please but do you ever think about that and do you ever just marvel at that that'll change your mood on the way to church got to church in a bad mood stop don't get out of the car and think god all of my children could have died on the way here today but by your sovereign power, you protected us. Boy, you are good. The fact that it is on the power of God and not on the power of man means that your sanctification and mine, your perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, finally lies with God's own sovereign power. Therefore, you find verses like this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he that began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or how about this one? Maybe getting way more specific here as to the precise dynamic of your perseverance. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that's not the period. That's a semicolon. For 
It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, God is so near to us. His eminence is really an amazing thing to ponder. It is his power. It is by his, his, his energy, it is his strength that keeps you believing. You ever wonder that? Why did I wake up today believing in the gospel again? Why isn't it that I just didn't apostatize by now? Why is it that when you believe, the type of faith that God gives a genuine believer is the type of faith that keeps believing? It's because he is upholding you. He's upholding your faith. It's just marvelous. The other thing is that the power that is protecting us is God's power. That means it is the power of omnipotent strength, which means he is able to do it. Jude 24, now to him who is able, able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's an amazing statement. Not only is he able to keep you from stumbling, and scandalizo there does not mean falling down physically on your face like you tripped, but it's speaking of spiritual stumbling. It's speaking of apostasy, ultimately. And it is God that is able to keep you from final falling, as the hymn says. He keeps us from final falling. And he makes us stand. You see that? Stand. That goes back to Psalm 1 and the life of the righteous man who, in contrast to the wicked, is able to stand in the judgment. While the wicked do not stand. They cannot stand. They don't have the moral rectitude to stand in the presence of His glory. They will be humbled. What does, what does Philippians say? Their knee will bow. Probably at that point through a forced submission to the Lordship of Christ. But not only is there the power of our assurance, there's also the method. And the method consists mainly of trusting in the power of God, which I think is Peter's way of, say, of saying when he says that this is by faith. When Peter says that we are being protected by the power of God, and then he uses this prepositional phrase, through faith, through the instrumentality, we can say, through the means of your faith, through the means of trusting. And I think this is Peter's way of saying, don't look for escape. He didn't say, by delivering you from all of your trials that you can imagine. No, that's not the dynamic. It's actually the opposite of that. It's, it's trials and opposition and adversity for this specific purpose, to foster and to cultivate and to grow your faith. That's what it is. That's why he prunes. That's why he cuts away things that are unpleasing to him. He is constantly trying to do the opposite of what the devil does. The devil is here to gobble up faith, to devour faith. You remember Peter? Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, meaning what? He wants to eat your faith like a roaring lion. He wants to just tear your faith to pieces, to shreds. God, on the other hand, 
is always wanting to increase faith. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just to see how in the real world this works. How does it work in your life, in my life? Well, it works just like this. You see this in Paul's personal sufferings. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, we're going to go to verse 11. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, when was the last time you were in a trial like that, by the way? So you can learn from someone who is in a trial far worse than yours. Learn from Paul. Until you have really come to a place where you can say, my trial was of such a degree, it was of such a type, that I despaired even of life. I did not think I was going to be able to live past this trial. And some of you have been there. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death. Within ourselves, there was, a, there was a notion within yourself that you thought you were going to die. It was, a, it was almost as if you had cons- convinced yourself, this is it. Paul had been brought to a place where he was thinking in his soliloquy, as he was thinking to himself, this is the end of the line. It's over. This is how, this is the, the edge the precipice to which God had brought him. And he said, this is why. So that, these purpose clauses, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but, then he doesn't use the word trust, but that is the exegesis, but to trust in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will, and will deliver us He upon whom we have set our hope. Keep going. And He will yet deliver us. Verse 11, that's what I mean. This is getting into the nitty-gritty of life. You also joining and helping us through your prayers. If um, you ever think again, your prayers are not helping. They're not doing anything. You know how many Christians have told me, I've prayed, it doesn't work. It's not helping me. It's not doing anything. Shame on you. Because according to God's word, your prayers do help. They are assisting in the saints. They are the way, the means that God will accomplish His sovereign purposes. And we dare not, ju- we dare not doubt that helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons and that is thanks to God many persons on our behalf for the favor that has been bestowed on us through the prayers of many that is so glorious man prayer that's going to be my next sermon series prayer i want to look at a whole theology of prayer and uh i, I just gave it all away so you know what's going, what's going down. God did not give Paul stronger skin. God did not give Paul stronger bones. God did not hand Paul uh, a bunch of supplements. He didn't tell him to go down to the Sprouts or the Trader Joe's down the street and buy a bunch of vitamins and a bunch of organic, you know, tomatoes and potatoes and whatever they do organically. Everything about now. Organic Never mind. 
you know the Bible, it's actually quite the opposite. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, not only is Paul not promised healthier bones on his way to fulfilling God's mission, but he is promised suffering. I'll show him everything. He must suffer for my sake, for my sake. The whole reason why, trust in God who raises the dead. Therefore, the faith method of God's grace is a purifying method. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, again, striking a delicate balance here between perseverance and hope on one side and throwing away our hope and failing to endure on the other side. This is the method of God's assurance. It, is, it works out like this through our endurance, through our perseverance. But beginning in verse 35 of Hebrews 10, it says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Great reward. Never, never lose your evangelical soul. Never lose the, the, just that, that simple devotion to Christ, that simple, pure devotion to the gospel, that ancient, archaic gospel. God sent his son to die on a cross for my sins. And because I have, by the grace of God, repented and believed in him, I will be saved. Great reward in that. Because that is exactly what the devil is hiding, veiling the minds of the unbelievers. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Oh, next time you're tested, Next time you're in the fire, and I know you go through the fire, I hear about it all the time. I'm a pastor. I hear about it. Wait till you hear about my fire. Anyway, we go through the fire, and when we do, we need to speak this to ourselves. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once so eloquently put it, preach to yourself because Satan will always be preaching to you. If you stop preaching, he'll pick it up right where you left it off. So be preaching to yourself, he says, and, and preach this word. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a very little while, he who is coming was, will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The book of Hebrews does not teach that you can lose your salvation. Quite, quite the contrary. It actually, actually teaches the, 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 the reformed doctrine, if you would, of the perseverance of the saints. This is where they got it from. They got it from verses like this. Verses that assure that we will persevere to the end. Now, finally, what is the substance? What is it all about? The hope of heaven is rooted, after all is said and done, in an ultimate reality. And it's there in the pages of 1 Peter. He says again that we are protected by the power of God through faith for, and this is a purpose clause, for this purpose for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What an incredible, incredible statement, full of all sorts of theological uh, truth. The substance 
and the full Oh, the fullness of our assurance is yet to come, brothers and sisters. We are assured now of its future realization. That's what we're assured of. Right now, we have the assurance that in the future, the reality of what we're hoping in now will be fully realized. Of course, it is this this salvation fully revealed, fully manifested. And what he is talking about, of course, is the, in this full disclosure of this revelation is nothing less than the end of the world, the end of all things, the end, the eschaton, the last time. It's not speaking so much of a time period like the phrase that you find throughout the Word of God, this, this phrase, the last days. That is speaking of a time period in which we live now. We are in the last days, but Peter is talking about the last time as in a consummation way, meaning when it's all over, when it's all brought to an end. That's what he's talking about. And this is when we go from hoping in the reality of our future hope and, 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 and receiving the outcome of it, receiving the vindication of our salvation, the day when Christ will return and God will rescue His people, when He will return and He will rescue His church one day God will, will, will bring an end to this world that Christ will return and He will redeem or He will rescue His bride, beaten, battered, bloodied, however, however she may be when He comes, beaten down by persecution. I just see a spaceship. I don't know if that's... I hope, we, I hope this sermon does have some liftoff. <clears throat> I've been praying for that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is not bad for us to wish that this will happen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. That one day, God is going to vindicate His church by punishing her enemies. One day, God will punish God's enemies, will punish the enemies of God's people, the persecutors. He will punish the Muslim nations for what they are doing right now to the persecuted church. He will punish the communist nations like China, like North Korea. I mean, this week I saw these, I I read a whole description of the type of horrific persecution that Christians are living under in North Korea, and it is horrific. One day, God will punish all such persecutors. Look at what Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 6 says, "For after all, it is only just. Don't be overly compassionate. Don't want God to be a universalist. He is not. He is not a universalist. He has enemies, and there are those that will always remain God's enemies because it's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you So there is vindication. There is the vengeance. Make room for God's vengeance to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. I think that's the same thing that Peter's talking about. When the Lord will be revealed, when our salvation will be fully revealed when He comes back from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. One angel destroyed a hundred and 
I don't know, 170-something thousand Assyrians just vanquished, a carnage. And when Christ returns, it will be the same way. There will be a total decimation of his enemies. He will be dealing out, look at this, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was Believe. That is Paul's way of making what he just said very personal to that audience because they believed Paul's message. Therefore, this impending vindication is for them. It's a comfort for them. And Peter says, this is ready to happen. Ready. And believers cannot, with the world, ask or say to God, everything has remained the same from the beginning of time. What is this talk of judgment and the end of the world and the, the, the dissolving of all things. Everything has remained as it is from the beginning. It's always been this way. But believers know that actually we live in a world that is in a ready state. We live in a world that is in a state that is ready for this final consummation to come, which means this. Not that we live our lives with this hyper-eschatology trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist or something like that. Not that, but what we're saying is that God has done everything that needs to be done in order to usher in the end of the world. There is no other redemptive events that need to take place. Christ being risen was the final and ultimate event that transpired, sending the world into a state that is called the last days where we are awaiting now the consummation of all things. This is why God is protecting us. We are being protected, guarded, kept, and if He so wills, my wife was asking me about this, I think, today or yesterday. Is it possible that God can come back, that I won't have to die? I said, yes, because that's the right answer. It is never right to say, well, don't count on it. No, that is not, that is not the attitude I see coming from the pages of the New Testament. That's not the theology. that I, That's not the apostolic example I see. I see them living it with a sense of urgency. The Lord is at hand. The salvation is ready to be revealed. Watch, therefore, you know not when your master returns, when he is coming. No, I think we are called to live with a sense of eschatological urgency. I don't care what theological camp you fall into. One thing is for certain, if you are going to be apostolic, then you must live in the hope and in the utter expectation that one day Christ can crack the skies wide open and come back to this wretched planet, deliver his people, destroy his enemies, and set up his kingdom and reign. That is to be, according to Paul, a comfort that one day in the twinkling of an eye, you will be transformed. 
You will be changed. This perishable body that you nag so much about, especially the older you get, will one day put on imperishability. One one day this, this mortal body, because we're all afraid to die, one day it will put on immortality. No more fear of death. Isn't that great? We are headed to a place where we will no longer fear this awful thing called death that the Bible calls an enemy and that the world in its fallen, darkened, feudal wisdom calls just another aspect of life. No, that's a denial of the gospel. Death is not just an aspect of life. Death is the antithesis of life. Death is the enemy of life. Death is the enemy of the Christian because the Christian has been redeemed in order to live. And the glorious, glorious thing for us is that if we believe in Him, like Jesus said, if we trust in Him, we will never die. Glorious. Glorious reality. We will say with Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And that victory comes We have an installment of it right now, but we also have have the certainty, the future certainty, that that victory one day will be fully and totally revealed. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, we do thank you again for the hope that we do have, that it is unshakable, it cannot be undone, and we're grateful that by redeeming us and saving us, Lord, and and causing us, as Peter would say, using his words, causing us to be born again, that that redemption has been inaugurated. It has begun. And every day that we live the Christian life, that should just be another testament to the certainty of our future hope. God, give us hope. Fuel that hope in us. Foster greater faith through our trials. Do not let your church, do not let your people be overwhelmed, overtaken by the, by the, by the many billows of, 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 of trials, waves that, that come. But Lord, we pray you give us the proper dynamic, realizing that what you want is for us to trust. Not to trust in ourselves, which means don't trust in spouse, don't trust in children, don't trust in fellow brethren, don't trust in government, don't trust in doctors, but trust finally and ultimately in God who raises the dead. Give us this eschatological vision of our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.